Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And this is our third week talking about Catholicism and just looking at the, the differences between Catholicism and the Bible. And it's not that we hate Catholics. It's not that we, you know, I feel bad for, for Catholics, honestly, because they're just believing what they've been told. And many times it's, um, it's, it's in opposition to the Word of God, and they've just never been taught any different. So that's what we're doing with this. I mean, if, if somebody happens to be watching this that is Catholic or comes later on that's Catholic and sees it, I hope it's a help to them, but I, I hope it's a help to us, too, to help us to be able to understand how to help somebody get from Catholicism to the truth of the gospel. So um, we've, we started off by talking about the, the history of the Catholic Church and kind of how it got to where it was at, and, and really it took till the four or five hundreds A.D. for the Catholic Church to really it be established. Um, uh, you know, obviously it kind of got its start in the 300s with Constantine, but it wasn't even really established till the end of the 300s, uh, into the 400s. But then we looked last week at the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Roman Counter-Reformation, and then where the tr- true church was in all of that. But what I want to start this week, and I'm just going to kind of take, some I might do too, but for the most part, I'm just going to take one doctrine per week and look at it from the Word of God and why it's wrong from the Catholic Church perspective, uh, or why the Catholic Church is wrong. But before we get into talking about all the false doctrines that are propagated by the Catholic Church, I want to give you a brief list of of doctrines and practices that evolved in the Roman Catholic Church and and when. And I'm cutting out a lot of different things because obviously you you take, you know, close to 2,000 years of history and, um, you know, it's a long, long list. But a list of the Roman Catholic inventions that, that's taken, it, this actually comes from a book called Scriptural Truths for Roman Catholics, um, who is written by actually a former uh, Catholic priest, so obviously he knows very much what he's talking about and was very involved in it, but actually it's kind of interesting that today is Ash Wednesday. I had to get Kevin to wipe all the ashes off his face on his way in tonight, but um, it's very much a Catholic tradition. Uh, Ash Wednesday is when they... Uh, it's the first day of Lent, which they give something up uh, for Lent and something, you know, as a way of telling yourself no or whatever else. But today, uh, Ash Wednesday is, marks the first day of Lent, but essentially what they do is they fast and pray. So no meat, uh, one full meal, and the rest of it is supposed to be spent praying, which, hey, it's not a, not a bad idea, except that they're praying to the wrong place, really. But let me give you a few of these things here. It's, it's, it's quite a, a long list, but I'm just going to read the list, and uh, i got it up here for you to see and follow along with as well, um, just so you can kind of see some of the things that we're talking about, and got dates next to all of these things as well, and you can just, uh, the only reason I'm reading this to you is because I want you to kind of see what developed and how and when. I'm going to make a couple comments about this at the end, but sacerdotal mass was instituted by Cyprian in the third century, prayers for the dead, A.D. 300. Making the sign of the cross, A.D. 300, which is obviously very much Catholic, you know, make the sign of the cross. That was in A.D. 300. Mass became a daily ritual in A.D. 394. At the beginning of the exaltation of Mary, the term mother of God, first applied to her by the Council of Ephesus in A.D. 431. Priests began to wear special clothing in A.D. 500. The doctrine of purgatory by Gregory I in A.D. 593. Now, purgatory... You'll, you'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but uh, later, not, not tonight, but purgatory is uh, where you go after you die. You don't go to hell, you go to purgatory, and you go to have your sins burned off, and the worse you were in this life, and the more sins you have, the longer you're going to spend in purgatory, which 
imagine this. You can actually pay money for the priest to pray for the dead to help get them out of purgatory sooner. What a great way to make money. Your loved one's burning in hell, you know. You can pay money to get them out. That's, that's, that's a lot about money. Latin was used in worship first in A.D. 600. Prayers offered to Mary, to dead saints, to angels in A.D. 600. The first man to actually be proclaimed pope was Boniface III in A.D. 610. Now, he was not the first one to claim to be pope, but he was the first one that was actually claim, uh, proclaimed pope. This was 610. When did Christ die? About A.D. 33, 30, right? You know, they say if you date everything all the way back, Jesus Christ was actually born in 4 B.C., so he would have died in 29 A.D., but give or take a couple years, we're talking 600 years later before you actually have the first person that's proclaimed pope. That's going to be significant later on. Uh, kissing the pope's feet began in A.D. 709. Holy water that was mixed with a pinch of salt and blessed by a priest, A.D. 850. Canonization of dead saints, where they actually become saint whoever. Uh, was, was uh, first by Pope John the 15th in A.D. 995. Fasting on Fridays in Lent, 998. Celibacy of priests, meaning they could not marry, 1079. Rosary adopted from pagans by Peter the Hermit, 1090. Sale of indulgences, 1190. Some of these things are probably terms you don't recognize. We're going to talk about these later on as we get into it, and so I'm, I'm, just, I'm not going to spend time on it right now. But seven sacraments defined by Peter Lombard, 12th century. Transubstantiation, which is where the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, defined by Pope Innocent III in 1215. Confession of sins to a priest instead of God, instituted by Pope Innocent III in 1215. The Bible was forbidden to laymen, placed on the index of forbidden books by the Council of Valencia in 1229. Tradition declared of equal authority with the Bible by the Council of Trent in A.D. 1545. Apocryphal books added to the Bible by the Council of Trent. The Apocrypha is all the books that are in between the Old and the New Testament, and the Catholic Bible has the Apocrypha in it. So if you find, and you can find these, you know, I mean, they sell them in bookstores, and I mean, you can find them online, you find them in Goodwill. Sometimes you'll find a Bible with the Apocrypha in it. That's a Catholic Bible. And by the way, all of the things that, you know, purgatory and baptism for, of babies and all of those things are found in the Apocrypha. It's one of the reasons we reject it. It goes completely against what we find in the rest of the Bible. Uh, infallibility of the Pope in matters of faith and morals proclaimed by the Vatican Council in 1870. Now, that's just a small list of things that developed over all of those years, but you think about that. How, how many years is that? From about 300 to 1870? You're talking about 1,500 years where they were taking the time to develop their doctrines, to develop their, you know, their different uh, um, practices and things that they did. But it's always interesting to me in any religion, and we've talked a lot about these, how new doctrines develop over time that had, been, had not been known to previous generations that have everything to do with salvation. Do you know that no doctrines have been developed no doctrines have been changed. No new practices have, have developed from true Christianity since the Bible was written. Because the Bible is the final authority. And the only way that you have new doctrines and all of these things that come about is when you stop making the Bible your authority and start making another Bible or another person your authority. 
And that's exactly what's happened within the Catholic Church. I mean, how important is the doctrine of purgatory to all those people that had died before that that could have gotten their sins burned off instead of being burned in hell, right? And how, how sad is it for all those people who are burning in purgatory that could have just paid money and had the priest pray to get them out, right? But it took them 500 years to come up, up with that. Why? Exactly. Because it doesn't have anything to do with true doctrines. It has everything to do with making money off of it, with all the other stuff that goes along with it. So true Christianity has been the same on all of those issues since the Bible was written. It has not changed. So to the vast majority of the world, Roman, the Roman Catholic Church is Christianity. And we've talked about this. They, they call themselves Christians. Everyone else calls them Christians. They, they talk about Jesus. They have the weight of history behind them. They feed the poor. They clothe the naked. They, heal, they help heal the sick. But when we stack up what they are and what they teach against the Word of God, we're, we're going to find out that they're nothing but false prophets. And again, there's a lot of people who are involved in the Catholic Church who believe what the Catholic Church teaches because that's what they've always been taught. Many people who are Catholics are Catholics not because they converted to Catholicism, but because they grew up in it because it was passed down from their parents who got it from their parents who got it from their parents, and it's just been, it's just been part of their religion. I think, I think I was talking about it with Michelle, actually, a couple weeks ago. But being Catholic is just as much as somebody who is Jewish, right? If you try to convert a Jewish person to Christianity... You're losing not just your religion, you're losing your identity, you're losing who you are, you're losing your heritage, right? Same thing with somebody who's a Hindu. You convert from Hinduism to Christianity, you're not just changing religions, you're changing your entire life. And it's a big deal for somebody to switch from Catholicism to Christianity, or Hinduism to Christianity, or Islam to Christianity, right? It's, it's, it, it is changing your identity completely, and in most of those cases... It's essentially telling their family, you're not good enough anymore. I'm better than you are. I'm changing not just religions, but I'm going to a completely different lifestyle. And they don't understand it. People don't understand it, those who are involved in those religions. And so uh, I'm, not, I'm not blaming necessarily the people who are uh, involved in Catholicism. I'm blaming the Catholic Church and those who continue to propagate it uh, because they're the ones that are that are pushing and teaching these false doctrines when if they would actually just go to the Bible, they would find that those doctrines are not there. So the first one I want to get into tonight then is, is uh, first false doctrine is the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. And it's foundational to understand that the Roman Catholic Church is not the only true church. Um, in fact, not only is it not the only true church, it's not a true church. And we'll see that. In Acts chapter 11, let me give you a brief overview of, of actual Bible doctrine, not Bible doctrine through the lens of a priest or a pope or whoever else has told you that. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means a called out assembly. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church because it comes from that word ekklesia, a called out assembly. Acts chapter 11 and verse 22. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. The church is a local and formal gathering of believers out of the world, assembled together for preaching, teaching, edification, ordinances, to organize themselves to carry out the Great Commission. That's what a local church is. The very nature of the word ecclesia, a called out assembly, indicates a local assembly. Most of the New Testament was written to individual churches. 
called out assemblies, right? To the church at Galatia, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Thessalonica, to the Christians at Berea, right? Go into Revelation and look at the, the, the writings to the seven churches, right? Why would he need to do that if he was not writing to individual churches? If he's just writing to one big universal church, which we don't have time to get into the idea of the universal church tonight, but that's what the Catholic church believes is in this universal church concept. Now, let me give you some problems with the universal church concept. The Roman Catholic church, uh, the concept of one large church under one head is distinctly anti-biblical. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 8. We see this is the, uh, in the example of the church that was at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, and Saul was consenting unto his death. Talking about who? Stephen, right? And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Acts chapter 13, turn over there. A couple, couple chapters over. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. To be a church, you have to be a called-out assembly. If you're just part of some huge conglomeration, you're not called out of anything. What are you called out from, right? What is the point of a called-out assembly? All the believers of the world have not been called out and assembled together, Right? We don't meet with people in uh, Russia and, and uh, Africa and South America. No, we're, call, we're called out local assembly. All the believers of the world have not been called out and assembled together. When they do, we're going to have one universal church, uh, but that's not until, we, uh, not until Jesus comes back. And all of those individual churches will be united together in one universal church in heaven. But until then... The head of each individual church is Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now that goes directly opposite of what the Catholic Church teaches. Now they, they try to pretend that Jesus Christ is part of the church and everything else, but who is the head of the Catholic Church? The Pope, not Jesus Christ. The Pope is, is, is the final authority on everything. Romans, Rome's concept is, is Catholic, which means universal. Remember we said that, the Roman Catholic Church. Catholic, the word Catholic means universal. So they have the concept of one church versus a bunch of churches. And that approach allows them to, to wrongly claim that there's only one true church and that they are it. Uh, and and that, uh, that, uh, that church is under the authority of one man. Now that, that, that wrong approach supports the strongest possible authoritarian structure, which is exactly what they do, where the top never answers to the people. The Pope doesn't answer to anybody. He is the authority over the church on earth. Essentially, he has taken the place of Jesus Christ because he doesn't answer to anybody. He is the authority. Nobody can tell the Pope what to do. He tells them what to do. So this absolute power is also a very highly corrupting in both a doctrinal and a moral sense, and you'll see that as we go along through this study over the next several weeks, but even tonight we're going to look at a couple things as well, but Jesus didn't start a top-down authoritarian denomination when he was here on this earth, did he? he? He, you know, rules over the entirety of global Christianity. Even Jesus Christ himself didn't do that when he was here. So Jesus instituted the church 
It's an organization that's composed of tens of thousands of individual assemblies called churches. The Roman Catholic Church has always considered itself to be the one true church of Jesus Christ. Now, Catholic theologians have, have, have identified the Roman church with the body of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read you a few quotes here, and I've got them up there so you can kind of follow along if you want to as well. But this comes from a, a book called One and Holy by Carl Adam. The Catholic Church knows herself as the church of Christ, as the body of Christ, as the one means of salvation. Because of this, she is bound to condemn all other churches which have arisen or may arise as extra-Christian and indeed unchristian and anti-Christian creations. We're the one true church. If you're not part of that, then you're anti-Christ. You're anti-His church. You're not even Christian. That's, that's why the Catholic Church has historically taught that outside of the church, there is no salvation, right? I mean, they made that very, very plain, plain but, but at least not in the fullest sense. Here's what they say. This was actually stated in the 15th century, in a 15th century Roman council, the Council of Florence in 1439. The Catholic Church believes, professes, and proclaims that no one living outside the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but both Jews, heretics, and schematics, can become partakers of eternal life, but will go into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels unless before the end of life they become members of it. Talking about the Catholic Church. You will spend eternity in hell unless you die as a member of the Catholic Church. That's what they believe, and that's what they teach, and that's what they preach. It's interesting that, like most false religions do, this teaching has been modified somewhat in recent years. And they... I'm going to mention this, We've, we, we're going to talk about it as we get closer to the end of this series and maybe hit a couple of these other denominations that are very close to Christianity but are not Christianity, and that's the idea of ecumenism or the ecumenical church, and that idea means bringing everything under one giant head, and that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church is trying to do, make no mistake about that, that's what they want to do is have one large unified religion under the Catholic Church. And so, to get to that end, they're willing to bend a little bit. They're willing to change a few things to make it so that everybody will come under the authority of, that, of the Pope, the, the one head of the one church, according to them. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church has not ever been opposed to changing its dogmas and its doctrines and whatever it needs to to accomplish a certain end. And we see that happen a lot. But today, Rome teaches that non-Catholic Christians, even followers of pagan religions, can also be saved if they sincerely follow the light that they have. Well, you, you, you're a Christian too. Come under us. Join us. Follow the Pope. You're a Christian if you're following the light that you have. Now, here's what they say. We now realize that millions of people have been and are within the one church, though in incomplete communion with it because of the divisions of Christendom. There exists a newly realized relationship between ourselves and our separated brethren. That's what they call it. Now, here's what they also say. The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the creator. Get this. You want to talk about trying to bring everything under one large religious umbrella? The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the creator. In the first place, amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us, they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. By the way, you're not talking about the same God. They're pretending that they are. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, 
but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and, moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those two may achieve eternal salvation. So in other words, if you're just acting on what you have available, you'll go to heaven. You're, you're trying. You're trying to go to heaven. You're trying to find the truth, so you will. That's not in the Bible, and, I'm, and, and it's such a sad thing. It's, 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 it really is a, an admission of failure on the part of Christianity. But the people who have not heard the gospel are not just going to by default go to heaven. People who have not heard the gospel and have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior are going to go to hell. That's why it's so important that we get the message of the gospel out. That's why it's so important that we send missionaries across the world to tell these people who have not heard. You don't by default go to heaven, and if you hear the gospel and reject it, okay, you go to hell. By default, you go to hell. We're sinners. We're born with that sin. And if somebody never tells them how they can be saved, they don't automatically get to go to heaven because they were doing the best that they could with what they had. They go to hell. And that's why it's, it, it's a failure on the part of true Christianity that we have not reached these people with the message of the gospel. But this, this concept is false, completely false. If you're a Muslim and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're not going to heaven just because you're trying to go off of the light that you have. But that's what they're saying. It's not just changing tactics to try to reach people. It's a complete change of the doctrine of salvation. A change doesn't mean that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe itself to be the one true church. It still does. But they're stating that non-Catholics can possess a measure of salvation, but the Roman Catholic Church sees those people as separated brethren. Did you notice that phrase? They're separated brethren. They're, they're us. They're just separated right now. They're somewhere else. Separated from what? From the one true church, which is what they teach and preach and espouse, and that's wrong. They say this, the separated brethren live outside the visible structure and full organic communion of the one church. So the Roman Catholic Church continues to consider itself the one true church in the fullest expression of that. And here's a few statements that have been made, uh, first of all, by the Vatican Council II in uh, 1975. This is the sole church of Christ, which in the creed we profess to be one holy Catholic and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care. This church, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in the Catholic church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Now you notice, Pope Boniface was proclaimed the first pope, in the 600s, right? And they're claiming succession from Peter. Well, who were all the popes up to Peter? It is through, the Catholic, the, through Christ's Catholic Church alone, which is the universal help toward salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. It was to the apostolic college alone, of which Peter is the head, that we believe that our Lord entrusted all the blessings of the new covenant in order to establish on earth the one body of Christ into which all those should be fully incorporated who belong in any way to the people of God. Now, you notice there's one phrase in there that they're building an entire doctrine off of, building an entire church off of. We believe. It doesn't say that in the Bible. They're taking something that the Bible said about Peter and then building an entire church off of something that they believe based on what was said, right? 
Here's another one. The ho this holy council, first of all, turns its attention to the Catholic faithful, basing itself on scripture and tradition. It teaches that the church, a pilgrim now on earth, is necessary for salvation. Christ is present to us in his body, which is the church. He himself affirmed at the same time the necessity of the church, which men enter through baptism as through a door. Hence, they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or to remain in it. Now, as a fancy way of saying, if you don't get baptized into the Catholic church, you're not a Christian and you're not going to heaven. And that's everything, and we're going to talk about this, and it's not something that you don't know, but everything that they do is based on works. And if you don't work hard enough, if you're not good enough, then you're not getting to heaven. And certainly if you don't go through the door of the Catholic church. That's what it all comes down to. Words could not be plainer as far as what they're trying to say. Those who say the Catholic church no longer makes exclusive claims are living in a fantasy land. Yes, they're getting ecumenical. Yes, they're trying to bring the entire world under their religion. But they still believe very much that they are the one true church and that the Pope is the leader of that one true church on this earth. So the objective of Roman Catholic ecumenism is for all non-Catholics to become Catholics and to submit to the authority of the Pope. Now, an ecumenical Roman Catholic leader said it this way. For the sake of the unity of the church, the rock of Peter's office must remain through the centuries. It is this papacy alone which makes possible unity. To admit even the possibility that the final union of Christendom could take place other than in her and through her would be a denial and betrayal of her most precious knowledge that she is Christ's own church. For her, there is only one true union, reunion with herself. So in other words, if you're not part of the Catholic Church, you have no hope of ever going to heaven, of ever spending eternity in heaven, of ever making it there because you rejected the one true church, which is the Roman Catholic Church. So the, de the, the declarations and the subtle changes made in the Second Vatican Council that we already talked about were made to make the path of reconciliation easier for Protestants. And again, we're seeing it happen. That was in 1975. That was almost 50 years ago. And you're seeing a lot of these Protestant denominations march closer and closer and closer and closer to union with the Catholic Church, right? There's a huge faction right now within the Methodist Church that's about to split off. Actually, they already have split off and gone in a completely liberal direction because they are very much in favor of all of these things, and they're not much different at all than the Catholic Church, and it probably won't be too long before they are part of the Catholic Church. You see that happening with the Anglicans and the Lutherans and a lot of these others. They're marching closer and closer and closer to union with the Catholic Church. And so it was actually the Protestants, the World Council of Churches, which is a whole other topic for a different day. The World Council of Churches is a very, very ecumenical group, but they, they claim to be Protestants. They actually led in the attempt to reconcile with Rome and to include Rome in their endeavors, which is why you see guys like uh, Rick Warren, right? Saddleback Church. You ever heard of the purpose-driven life, purpose-driven church? Rick Warren claims to be a Protestant. He claims to be a Christian, but he does, he shakes hands constantly with the Catholic Church. Shaking hands constantly with, the, with Islam and trying to pretend that all of it's the same. We're just a little bit different here and there. That's what the, that's what the World Council of Churches is doing. That's what ecumenism is doing. This ecumenical movement is trying to, trying to justify bringing Catholicism and, and Islam and Christianity all under the same umbrella. 
and trying to pretend that we're not that much different. We could not be more different. Now, Protestants and Catholics, yeah, they're probably not that much different, and they, that's why they see it that way. But that's for a different day. But that's why ecumenism and the ecumenical church is so dangerous to true Christianity. That's why it's so dangerous. Now, when you start to compromise on anything, you start to compromise on anything, you are taking steps in that direction. And so all of the important Roman Catholic dogmas remain intact, but the changes are designed to strengthen that ecumenical effort. And really, it's the effort toward bringing these separated brethren, as they call them, back into the fold of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, turn over to John 17, 11. John chapter 17, verse number 11. Because we're going to see this. The Roman Catholic Church, is, their response is that Jesus prayed for oneness. How can you say that we shouldn't all be under one, one leader? How can you say that we shouldn't all be one church? Jesus Christ prayed for oneness. He did. But look how. John chapter 17 and verse number 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Now, here's some important distinctions between what they say being one is and what we know being one means. It's a spiritual unity. Right. It's not a uniform structure. He, said, he didn't say that we may be one under one head in one church. He said that we may be one, right? You're talking about in a spiritual sense. Jesus never built a, formula, a, a formalized structure. Neither did Peter, neither did Paul, neither did any of the other apostles, right? They established churches, local assemblies. They put pastors in those churches. Now, they had help, but they were not all under the church at Jerusalem. They were not all under the church at Antioch. They were their own church. Sometimes Paul had to say, hey, you're getting off in doctrine right here. Be careful. But he didn't say, you know, you're going to be excommunicated because you're preaching doctrine that I didn't say you could preach, right? If the Catholic church, the universal church was so important, then that's exactly how God would have instructed Paul to write it, right? He was an apostle. He helped them, guide them, direct them to keep them in doctrinal purity and everything else. But that has, has nothing to do with a universal church. Now, the importance of the Roman Catholic Church's wrong doctrinal approach to the church is seen in the syllabus of errors. They wrote, um, um, well, this was done by a papal bull. By the, by the way, it sounds kind of funny, but a papal bull is an official papal letter or a document from the pope. Uh, the name is actually derived from a lead seal called a bulla that was traditionally affixed to those documents. So you can see how they would affix that to, this is a, a, an edict from the Pope. Go to the next picture. This is a picture of what that little seal actually looked like. That was a lead bulla, so a papal bull. And if you do any kind of reading about church history, Catholic church history and all that stuff, you'll see these papal bulls that were written. And all that is is just a, uh, an official letter or document from the Pope. Um, and this one, the Syllabus of Errors, was issued by Pope Pius IX in 1864. This list, this syllabus, is still in force today. There's over 80 of them. So obviously there's a lot. And you can go look them up. You can look up the entire uh, Syllabus of Errors. But I, wa I wanted to point out a few, few of them that they actually uh, said here. Number 15, you can see the numbers next to each one of these. No man is free. Get this. No man is free to embrace and profess that religion which he believes to be true, guided by the light of reason. 
So if you're being led away from Catholicism, essentially, you don't have a right to believe what you believe is right. Number 17, the eternal salvation of any out of the true church of Christ is not even to be hoped for. You want to go to heaven? Better stay in the Catholic church. You don't even have a hope if you're not in the Catholic church. 21, the church has power to define dogmatically the religion of the Catholic church to be the only true religion. 24, we could take a lot of time on these. 24, the church has the power of employing force and of exercising direct and indirect temporal power. 45, the direction of public schools in which the youth of Christian states are brought up neither can nor ought to be assumed by the civil authority alone. In other words, the Catholic Church ought to have a say in all of the public school education. 54, kings and princes, including, of course, presidents, prime ministers, etc., are not only to exempt from the jurisdiction of the church, but are subordinate to the church in litigating questions of jurisdiction. We can talk about that for a while. We're going to talk about that some more when we talk about the Pope. 55, the church ought to be in union with the state and the state with the church. That goes directly in contrast to one of the very tenets of what it means to be a Baptist. The S in Baptist stands for what? Separation of church and state because of that very thing. 77, it's necessary even in the present day that the Catholic religion shall be held as the only religion of the state to the exclusion of all other forms of, religion, of, of worship. That's awful. And it springs from the Roman Catholic Church's wrong concept of the church. Now, let's look at the impact on two different things and we'll be done. Turn over to Acts chapter 6. The impact of, uh, on church government. And as we mentioned, the Roman Catholic Church model is a top-down model. The Bible model is a democratic or a congregational model. Choosing deacons is an example of that model, and we see that in Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look, out, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. He told them to pick them, right? You go look at your church. Pick out the deacons in your church and set them over the affairs of that, of that church. Uh, the Roman Catholic model has no financial or moral accountability versus the biblical model uh, is openness. Money is a great example of that. You can turn, if you want to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read verse 20 and 21. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is ministered by us, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Openness, honesty. You come look at whatever you want to look at. The church? Absolutely not. You don't have any right to do that. The Roman Catholic Church logic claims the right to a hierarchy over all of Christianity. Uh, it's a religion of totalitarianism that says, my way or the highway. If you don't like it, then you're not going to heaven. If you don't like it, then you're, you can get out of the church. But you get out of the church, it's, it's over for you. But they talk about that in, in doctrine and in practice and organization and heaven and hell and all other aspects of the religion. There's no individual soul liberty in the Roman Catholic Church system, right? What's individual soul liberty? Another tenet of Baptist, right? There's no priesthood of the believer in the Roman Catholic Church, another tenet of Baptist. There's no accountability in the Roman Catholic system. There's, there's only power and more power concentrated in the hands of the man at the top, right? Must be great to be the Pope because you can tell anybody to do anything you want to and claim that it came from, from God himself, right? But what about the impact on, on political government? They demand not only the religious allegiance of all Christians, but the political allegiance of all nations, too. 
there's lots and lots and lots of examples. You see that, that Roman Catholic model uh, in the church that controls the state. That's seen throughout history. I mean, it would be that the pope was the one who put the crown on the head of the Roman emperor, right? You didn't become the emperor without the pope's permission. You couldn't divorce. There's all kinds of stuff that, that happened that, that was, you know, really uh, church and state butting heads because, you know, if you got divorced, you were excommunicated. Uh, one of the popes, Henry, or, or emperors, Henry VIII, wanted to, to uh, divorce his wife. The pope said no. Now that creates a huge issue. If you go against the pope, now you're excommunicated. And so it had lots of political implications and everything else, but... Um, the Pope demands that the Roman Catholic Church be the only church allowed in every country. To this day, to this day, the Vatican um, is, is a religious and a political entity, right? The Vatican is a country. And to this day, 80 different nations send ambassadors to the Vatican, including the United States. You think that it's not trying to take political precedence? They're, they're the, the, the church head and the building where the church is housed is its own country and 80, 80 countries send ambassadors to it they're trying to take over how did jesus interact with political government did, did jesus seek to control israel politically did jesus you know obviously the, the king's hand heart is in the hand of the lord and all that stuff but did jesus depose roman emperors and tell them they couldn't do this or do that you know, did, did Jesus try to control the Roman Empire politically? Did the apostles do that? No, of course they didn't. Separation of church and state is a Baptist doctrine. And, you know, just, just like individual soul liberty, priesthood of the believer, and so on. They're important to us specifically in reaction to the wrong Roman Catholic church doctrine. What about the biblical response? Let's, let's take two minutes and look at this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. Number one, the Roman Catholic church did not exist until the 5th century at the earliest Right? So, certainly, the churches that were described in the New Testament have no resemblance to Catholicism. It took them 400 years, 500 years, to come up with that model with that late origin and, of course, the heretical nature. It's impossible to accept the, accept the Church of Rome as the one true church. You came, you came way too late onto the scene to be a descendant from the apostles, right? Not to mention the fact that everything you teach and preach is against what the apostles taught and preached. But here's the second thing. No man-made no man organization is the true church. Uh, the New Testament speaks about the church in two ways. Number one, the general church composed of all born-again Christians in heaven. We see that in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and he goes on. But it's in heaven. You're talking about a spiritual church in heaven. That's where the universal church is at, not on this earth. And so the, the other way that the New Testament speaks of a church is the local church of professing Christians on this earth. And we already talked about lots of different examples, but the, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 is a perfect example of that. And the Roman Catholic Church is neither of those. It's not the church in heaven, and it's not individual churches on this earth. So how can it be the one true church? It's wrong for any one organization to, be claim, to claim to be the true church and the possessor of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the church, Amen. which just in the very few things that we read from them, they very much make it obvious that it's not in Jesus Christ, it's in the church. And unless you're in the church, unless you come in through the door of baptism into the church, then you don't have salvation. 
They didn't mention anything about faith in Jesus Christ in any of those statements that we read. Neither the Roman Catholic Church nor any other church has the right to claim to be the one and only true church of Jesus Christ. You don't need to turn there. I got it up on the screen for you, but I want to end with this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 2. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Amen. Now, I could have started with that verse and used that as a text. I decided to end with that one instead. Because that is about as plain as you can get that the church at Corinth, even though you're part of a larger assembly in heaven, was an individual called out assembly, a local church. That is exactly the opposite of what the Catholic church is. And the Catholic church is wrong on the doctrine of the church. Now, next week, we're going to get into the priesthood. And we're going to use that to springboard us into the next week to the papacy or the pope. There's a lot of things wrong with both of those things, and we're going to take some time to go over that over the next couple of weeks. But we're finished for tonight, the, 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 the church. Ecclesia. What does ecclesia mean? Called out assembly, right? That's what we are here. We're not part of some global giant network. doesn't mean we're illegitimate because we have just our church here, right? This is what God called us to do. Local, called out assemblies, whose job is edification, preaching right doctrine, the great commission. What are we doing here? Better be that. Better be that. Directly opposite of what the Catholic Church is and what they believe about the church. Father, we love you. Give me thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the examples that we have in the early church from the apostles. From the, from the writings that we have in the Bible that tell us how to do uh, church the right way. And God, I thank you for our local assembly here. I pray that you'd help us to win many souls and that we do everything that we're supposed to be doing according to the word of God in this church. And God, I pray that you'd help us to understand these things as we go through them, that we might better understand how to lead someone to Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.